This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. I finished the first manuscript of my book about this case in late December of 2020, just before the Christmas holiday. Around that time, December 28th to be exact, a man named David Todd was reported missing from Scott County by his mother Donna. Two days before Christmas, a motor vehicle crash was reported in Kelso, a well-kept small rural village with a mixture of farmhouses and brick ranches. It's just a few miles north of Scott City. The Southeast Missouri newspaper, for which I previously worked as executive editor, reported that David Todd may have been involved in that wreck. A large-scale search was conducted, and David Todd's glasses were found northwest of the accident site toward the trailer court. In the days following that announcement, I received a handful of messages and texts that the crashed truck belonged to Mark Abbott and that David Todd was a friend of Mark's and lived at the trailer owned by his parents. That last part is very true. The newspaper stated that Todd lived on Woodland Drive, which is one of the roads that leads into the trailer park owned by Larry and Reba Abbott. I was able to confirm the other statement through back channels that Todd was driving Mark Abbott's truck. I was told that Mark Abbott told officers that Todd was a friend of his and he let him borrow that truck. I haven't heard any update on that case since January 3rd. It's been nine months. All these years later, Mark Abbott's truck is still lurking in the darkness of a Scott County, Missouri story. That same road and that same trailer park where David Todd lived is the same trailer court where Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley conducted the first interview of Mark Abbott on the afternoon of November 8, 1992. That trailer park is pretty much where Tom Beardsley was left behind. Before he left Mark Abbott's house that afternoon, Beardsley asked Mark to return to the sheriff's office. Beardsley left Mark's house and went to the crime scene to check to see whether that hitchhiker that Mark mentioned left any footprints. By the time Beardsley got back to the jail, he learned he would not be interviewing the identical twin like he had planned. The second ranking officer in the department was taken off the case. Mark would add a new, dramatic twist to his story to the new officers he was talking to. And that twist, ultimately, would lead him to a courtroom a year and a half later, pointing to a blue-eyed white kid from Kankakee, Illinois. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. They never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Abbott uh, just looked at me and just kind of laughed a little bit, and he said, yeah, they got... They got the wrong guy for that. He said, I took care of that bitch. To bring you up to speed, Mark Abbott, if you remember, told a couple of falsehoods during his first interview with Tom Beardsley. One, that the window was rolled all the way down, which presumably allowed him to reach in and pull Michelle up by her shoulder. The second was that he first knew the victim was female by noticing the rings on her fingers. Again... Michelle normally wore rings, but that night she had placed them in her console where officers found them while processing the car. When we reenacted that interview between Beardsley and Mark Abbott, we included the entire conversation between those two people. But there was one line that we left out, and I want to address that now. West Jury was the jailer who released the Abbott twin the night before. He met Beardsley at Mark Abbott's trailer to positively identify the twin as the person who indeed reported the shooting death the night before. 
jury was convinced that it was the same twin, and going forward, Mark Abbott has staked his claim as touching Michelle Lawless and reporting the crime. Anyway, Beardsley did do almost all the talking, but jury interjected at one point, and we did not include that line in the previous reenactment. So jury did ask a very relevant question, and this is what he asked, quote, You said you were headed home after you checked her out? And then Mark responded, Right here to the house. So on the day after the murder, he said he went directly to the house, through Kelso, that night. My belief, and this is just my opinion, is that had Beardsley stayed on the investigation, he would have drilled down on that statement. I think Tom Beardsley would have wanted to know, or at least I do, what exactly Mark did when he went home. I think he'd want to know whether he saw his girlfriend there, and why exactly Mark left his home and then drove on to Heather Pierce's house to spend a few hours. I bet Beardsley would want to know why Mark was still claiming he had blood on his hands when he arrived at Pierce's house. Beardsley would have had a ton of tough questions, because I believe Beardsley would have wanted to know more about those rings that Mark saw. And I certainly think Beardsley would want to know more about that window. I interviewed Tom Beardsley. It's been a while now. This was long before I knew I wanted to do a podcast, and I didn't record the interview. But the lawless case still ruffles him. He told me that by the time he got back to the sheriff's department, he'd been taken off the case. Beardsley was the number two officer in the department. He was the man in charge on the weekends that Farrell was away. Beardsley said he had a few murder investigations under his belt, while Shivitz had none. Beardsley was upset all those years later about how the case was handled. I asked him why he thought he was taken off the case, and he said he thought it was because he suspected the Abbott twins were involved. I asked him what he meant by that, and he told me that his boss, that being Bill Farrell, had a relationship with Larry Abbott, the twins' father. I asked him what kind of relationship. He said, you know, campaign donations. I asked him, you don't think the sheriff would tank a murder investigation over campaign donations, do you? He said no, it's probably more of a tit-for-tat thing. When I pushed further, he said he didn't think Farrell was on Larry Abbott's payroll if that's what I was getting at. I want to take a moment to consider just how unusual the decision would be to not have Tom Beardsley in on that second interview. Let's say, for the sake of discussion, that Bill Farrell believed Shivitz had attained the skill and training she needed to take on a larger role in murder investigations. According to Beardsley, she'd previously been assigned to women's and children's abuse cases. But let's just say Farrell thought Shivitz was the best person for the job in that moment. And, you know, in some ways that makes sense. Michelle was a female victim, and it looked like she was a victim of abuse. Or maybe he thought Beardsley needed to be more of a manager than working directly on the case at this time. So regardless of how anyone felt about Shivitz and Beardsley's investigative abilities, it just didn't make sense to not have Beardsley involved in that second interview. Beardsley spent about five minutes or so interviewing Mark Abbott. And when you investigate a murder, you interview folks over and over again, whether they're suspects or witnesses. You want to compare how stories change. It should be noted that I recently discovered that a second person sat in on that interview. It may have been Bill Farrell himself, I'm not sure. Mark Abbott testified in 2008 that he remembers talking to Bill Farrell and that maybe there was a female officer with him at the time. But I found two reports and both were similar in content. But I did not have the cover pages of either report, so I don't know who prepared them. 
One of the reports I can tell you was done by Shivitz because I recognized her penmanship and she testified multiple times about this interview. Both reports had the sheriff's department letterhead on them. So let's dive right into it. I'm about to play you some reenacted testimony from Brenda Shivitz about her interview with Mark Abbott. Would you please tell these ladies and gentlemen your name? Brenda Shivitz. And what do you do for a living? I'm a deputy sheriff at Scott County. Mm -hmm. How long have you been deputy sheriff in Scott County? 19 years. Did you, as part of your investigation, have contact with Mark Abbott? Yes, I did. Did you have contact with Mark Abbott the morning of, uh, or afternoon of November 8th? Actually, it was before lunch. It was the morning of. Where did your contact with him take place? At the Scott County Sheriff's Office. Mm -hmm. What was the purpose involved? Deputy Beersley had contacted him earlier in the day and asked him to come back in later that morning, and he came back. Deputy Beersley was preoccupied with something else, engaged in some other part of the investigation, and he asked me to talk with Mark. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what Mark Abbott said to you uh, about the incident at, at the telephone booth? Without checking my notes, just from memory, the gist of it was that he had seen this car, seen the lady up inside, was upset by that, went to the phone booth, the nearest phone booth, which was at the cut mart there at the exchange, the I-55 exchange, the Benton exchange. He picked up the phone to call 911. The call would not go through, so he decided to drive on into the Scott County Sheriff's Office and report it. Brenda, I believe you made a little mistake in your testimony, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to correct it. You told the jury that you talked to this boy, the Abbott boy, on Sunday morning the 8th. In truth and fact, wasn't it about 1.45? It could have been after lunch. My morning started at 3 a.m., so it could have been afternoon. Now, in the little girl's diary, did you check some of these people, you yourself? Yes, I did. Well, of all the people named in the diary, the name of Josh Keezer is not mentioned in there, is it? No, sir, it is not. The little girl, she didn't have any rings on her fingers when you saw her there in the car at the scene, did she? Not that I recall. Something like that you would note, wouldn't you? Possibly. You all made a big inventory of property, didn't you? Yes, we did. Look at that and maybe refresh your recollection. All the rings of the little girl were found in the console. Is that not right? I believe that is right. So if somebody says they saw rings on somebody's fingers, they were not seen correctly, were they? They were mistaken, I would say. Now, Abbott... If I follow directly, Abbott never said anything to anybody about the Hispanic or anybody down at the phone until he got to you. He told me about it. Well, you read all these reports to Chief Deputy Beardsley and the officers in the cop shop there. It was not reported, was it? Not to my knowledge. Now, Abbott claims that he offered to have himself vampired, blood drawn, you know, but you all didn't do it. How come now? I don't know, Mr. Lowe's. That wasn't my decision to make. Well, he was never vampired, was he? No, sir, not to my knowledge. Well, Farrell was in charge of everything, wasn't he? Yes, sir. And so you had run it by Bill Farrell? That is true. Routine things like, shall we go to this fellow's blood draw or not? Would you run that by the sheriff? Generally, yes. Now, the window on the car, you were out there? Yes. And what did you say? How far was it down? I really didn't notice. I was concentrating on the young lady 
and I wasn't at the scene but momentarily until a sheriff sent me on down to the lawless residence. Brenda, the Abbott boy never stated to you how he reached in the window talking about the car window, right? Yes. He's a fairly sized young one, isn't he? Average, yes. In the window. For him to be able to do what he told you he did, namely reach in front of the driver's side, across and pick up the body of the girl, pick her up, look at her face, and look at her hands and see those rings, the window would have to be all the way down or within an inch or so, wouldn't it? I don't know. Well, the window was partway down or partway up, wasn't it? Yes, sir. And beyond question, we have got pictures so the jury understands. This is the driver's side here. The body is lying over that way to the passenger side, is it not? Yes. And if you were reaching over here, you got to have a good deal of leverage regardless of your size and space, do you not? Yes. Okay, remember how I said earlier in the first episode that Tom Beardsley specifically asked Mark Abbott, other than the hitchhiker, if he had seen any other person or car near the crime scene? Mark said no. Now, in this second interview, one hour following the first, Mark has come forward with this new information. He said he drove to the closed gas station just west of the murder scene. This was called Cut Mart. He said he tried to dial 911. And back in 1992, Scott County had not yet adopted 911. There was a white car and a dark-complected man looking for fuel. So 13 hours after the murder, police are learning about a second man close to the crime scene. And I'm sure by now you might be remembering the first episode when Rick Walter explained to us the interaction Roy Moore had uh, when he stopped a Mexican in a white car looking for gas. The, the vehicle pulled up and stopped. And Roy asked him, you know, he, he said, you need to move on. And they asked what was going on uh, and that they were looking for gas. And Roy directed them to uh, northbound on uh, 55 to go to Scott City to, uh, to that's, where the, that's where gas was at. There wasn't right. any around here. But it was actually, in Roy's description of the vehicle, it was a white vehicle with some Mexicans in it. So we know there was a white car. Different people close to the case have different theories about the Mexican and the car as it relates to Mark Abbott. The first is that Mark was making up the entire episode and somehow learned about the Mexican in the car and then just incorporated that into his story. One source I've talked to on the condition of anonymity, who was once very familiar with some of the suspects, told me Mark really did stop at the payphone and he called someone else and not 911. Another theory is that the Mexican in the car was somehow connected to the murder. In later years, the Abbots and their friends were involved in big meth deals with the Mexican cartel. Maybe these Mexicans were involved in a drug deal not far from the crime scene, and maybe they were trying to leave the area. A third theory is that there were two white cars, the Mexicans who were leaving the area, and a different white car that pulled up with a dark-complected man. Any of these theories could overlap but they do seem connected somehow. The outer road there is a road to nowhere. There was nothing to indicate that there was a fueling station in that direction. The two cars would drive in a similar fashion on that outer road within minutes of officers arriving on the scene is just too suspicious to ignore. I believe, based on reporting, that one or both of the vehicles were looking for people hiding out around the sales lot. I mean, the scene was hot. If there were folks stranded on that lot after a drug deal and a murder, they needed to get out. I can imagine a scenario where the people in the car saw Mark at the gas station and spooked him, 
and then they turned around, headed back to the sales lot to look for others involved in the murder to remove them from the scene. Perhaps with no luck, they went back to the scene, claiming they were only looking for gas. It's suspicious, the two cars, but I have no clear answers for you. So we know there was a small white car at the scene. Officer Roy Moore reported that. There was another witness who came forward that said she saw a white Ford Escort on the overpass around 1230 or so. So by the time Mark Abbott gave his second interview, which took 30 minutes, six officers had spent roughly 37 or 38 minutes total with an Abbott twin. Thirteen hours after the murder, none of those six officers had asked Mark Abbott about where he had been the night before the murder. Two officers, if you count dispatcher Newman, wrote in their notes it was Matt Abbott who reported the shooting death, but let the twin go before asking him any questions. Another officer, Roy Moore, failed to get Abbott's license plate, which was, by the way, a medium-sized car and not a black Chevy S10 pickup truck. None of the officers asked to see ID. None asked the twin to give a polygraph. No one asked him to give a blood sample. No one asked him to examine his truck or search his home or ask him to turn over clothes from the night before. Five of the officers knew the window was about halfway up, despite his claim. No one had yet to ask him about the rings she was not wearing. By this point, the sheriff's department had access to that diary. Still, no one, as far as I could tell at this point, had asked Mark if he knew Michelle. If they asked these things, they were not included in the reports. Witnesses generally don't report themselves as someone else. Witnesses don't generally drive back to the crime scene down dark roads near where cops are processing the scene, especially if their driver's licenses are revoked. Witnesses generally don't make up incorrect statements to give law enforcement officers, and they don't generally wait 13 hours before telling officers of people they saw near the crime scene. Mark Abbott already had a reputation. He'd had several DWIs. He had been convicted of a felony of leaving the scene of an accident. He'd already tried to tell an officer in Cape Girardeau that he was his twin, which was another felony. His father and his grandfather were involved in mafia activity in southern Illinois. If this were fiction, you'd roll your eyes and find something else at this point. But this story is real. It happened. And this is the first time all this is being told. And we're just at the very beginning. I ended the first episode by saying that the groundwork had been laid for an investigation that defies all reason. At every single turn in this case, after three years of my own investigation, nothing makes sense of why Mark Abbott was treated as a witness and not a suspect. Things would happen to Josh Keezer that were atrocious, and we'll get into all of that. But when you peel back everything by the time this case is over, you're left with only two reasonable conclusions. There was complete and utter incompetence, or there was corruption. I believe there was some incompetence early on in the case, but for the reasons why Mark Abbott and Josh Keezer were treated so differently, man, I think corruption's the better bet. I not only knew Marvin Wallace, mm -hmm. but I also knew Michelle. Marvin and I were third degree black belts together in, in the martial arts. So oh, really? we, we grew up basically for a long time with each other, and I knew Marvin prior to that, but I knew his daughter through school, high school, <clears throat> and uh, through Marvin's acquaintance. But then I also knew the Abbott boys, Mark and Matt, because I was good friends with their dad. Uh, 
Larry, Larry Abbott. You should recognize that voice from episode one. This is Ronnie Burton. He's the man who went to the sheriff's office and identified on the videotape that it was Matt Abbott, not Mark, who entered the sheriff's department that night. So that alone makes it kind of bizarre that I got tangled in the, in the middle of this. Uh, the Abbots were, I guess, a fairly well-off family uh, financially. And Larry owned Store 24 there in Scott City, uh, a little convenience store, quick shop there, a gas nice. station. And that's actually where I started to, to meet Larry. When I was in the construction business, I'd stop in there and eat and get to talk to him. And that's how I met him, uh, him and his wife, Reba. And that's where I met those two boys, his two sons. They were identical twins. Bill Farrell, also the acting sheriff at the time. Uh, again, it's, I guess it's, I don't care if it's on the record or not, and, and I can't prove it, but Bill was kind of a kingpin uh, in Scott County for a lot of illegal activities going on. I think he was a, he was a crooked sheriff. There's no, there's no question about it in my mind. You know, when you're when you lived in this county all your life and you know good people and you know bad people, you, you can pretty well read between the lines. But anyway. Uh, I don't know whether it's ever been known whether Bill openly admitted knowing, to that, knowing the habits. Uh, I, I know for a fact that he did. Okay. And the habits were involved in a lot of drugs, drug trafficking. Okay. Uh, basically, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is when push comes to shove, there was a lot of protection there. So it was in Bill's best interest too to see that this got pinned on somebody that didn't, that didn't do it. The interview of Mark Abbott that excluded Tom Beardsley finished at 1.50 p.m. on December 8th as Michelle's family was living their worst nightmare. Jason Lawless, Michelle's younger brother, told a television crew years later that the murder broke his family. No one had any inkling that Michelle was in any kind of trouble. Family and friends were not just shocked, they were shattered. Around 6.30 p.m. the evening after the murder, around five hours after the Mark Abbott interview, Andy Stone, the owner of TNT Tanning Salon, called the sheriff's department and told Deputy James Chambers that he knew Michelle. Stone told the deputy that Michelle had been raped and molested by her older cousin, an accusation that Michelle had shared with others. In about three or four days before the murder, Michelle had shown Andy Stone, again, the owner of the tanning salon where she went, she showed him the new tattoo on the back of her shoulder. It was a Pegasus, a mythical horse with wings. Andy said Michelle was in the salon Friday night, and so was Lyle Day. But Day would not pay her any attention, and he left. Stone told the officer that Michelle was gullible and that she would believe just about anything a person would say. The owner of the tanning salon was one of the first people in Michelle's circle of friends to insert himself into the case. We'd like to take a programming break here to remind you that you can support our work by subscribing to thewallacefiles.com. Before we return to the episode, 
I'd like to say that all this work is done in memory of Michelle Wallace, who lost her life and voice on November 8, 1992. The work is dedicated to the many abused women who are connected to the characters in this story and who share their experiences with us. You won't hear all of their names, but we honor them for their courage and thank them for their trust. So Farrell and Shivitz looked a little bit at Leon Lamb right off the bat. They looked in his car for mud or signs of blood. A day later, they returned to his house for more questioning. He repeated the same story. A couple of weeks later, they would give him a polygraph. Once he passed, they moved on from him. Leon was the last one to acknowledge seeing her alive. Later, blood traces found under Michelle's fingernails would be identified as Leon's, but that detail was attributed to the sex they'd had minutes before she died. She had scratched his back, Lamb said. The thing is, with Leon Lamb, police could have found a motive for him. Leon could be the jealous type, and he wasn't happy when he saw Michelle and her friend Lilisha Odell getting into a car with Vince Howard and Eric Shanks that Saturday night. But at the end of that night, she returned to Leon's house. Michelle always seemed to run back to Leon. None of Michelle's friends really thought Leon was killer. And in some ways, it doesn't make sense that he would follow Michelle after she left, then pull her over and force her down the embankment and back to her car. That really makes no sense. I mean, it almost had to be two people. Anyway, I believe, and so did Michelle's friends, that Leon cared for Michelle. But again, Leon could not be ruled out. If Leon is innocent, which I think he is, then he's another victim in this murder case. When you look through the investigative files in this case, most of Michelle's friends, who knew nothing about a boy named Mark, believed Lyle Day was the most capable of killing Michelle. Not so much that he had means physically to do so, because he had a bad hip from his car wreck, but they talked about Day's disposition. Day had a reputation for having angry outbursts. Witnesses stated he had a gun. He had a reputation for using or dealing drugs, a reputation that was proven to be true in later years through drug convictions. On November 10th, two days after the murder, Highway Patrol investigator Don Wyndham interviewed a friend of Day's. He said Day was super high strung. Just a few days before the murder, the friend said, Day told Michelle he didn't want to see her, and she jumped out of his truck and then just started walking. That same day, Wyndham interviewed a person who knew Michelle and had seen her the night of the murder. He saw Michelle with Vince Howard and Eric Shanks riding around, cruising earlier in the evening. He said he saw Michelle and Lyle Day together a lot. He said he'd been told that Lyle had a gun and showed it around to people in Sykeston. He said Lawless drank a lot and had a temper. So by the end of the day on November 10th, two days after Michelle was killed, investigators had a broad outline of what Michelle was doing the night before she got killed. She had spent much of that time with her good friend Lalisha Odell cruising Sykeston with Eric Shanks and Vince Howard. Michelle saw Leon Lamb earlier that night before she went cruising. Then she ended up at his house later where they had sex before she left his house shortly before 1 a.m. and headed home. Three days after the murder, on November 11th, Sheriff Bill Farrell called a meeting of the investigators who had been involved in the case. This meeting included Deputy Brenda Shivitz, Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley, Deputy Jim Chambers, and Highway Patrol investigators Don Wyndham and Dennis Overby. In that meeting, according to documents I obtained, a list of suspects were named. They were Lyle Day, Leon Lamb, a cousin who Michelle accused of sexually abusing her, Jim Copeland, a boy she dated, Jeff Owens, another guy she dated, and last but not least, Mark Abbott. 
Next to Mark Abbott's name in the notes on the document was number 344. That was the badge number of Tom Beardsley. So despite what Bill Farrell and Brenda Shevitz would say under oath later, Mark Abbott was an early suspect in the murder of Michelle Lawless. This document, written in Shevitz's handwriting, was never disclosed to Josh Kieser's defense team. But while Mark was at the bottom of that list, Lyle was at the top. Police had an early contact with Lyle Day, but Sheriff Bill Farrell and Deputy Brenda Shivitz would conduct a formal interview on November 13th. They met Lyle Day at the law office of Kenny DeMitt Jr. Day agreed to be interviewed, but only with his attorney present. Shivitz took notes. Day stated he'd been to a party at Gene Tidwell's in Matthews, Missouri. For context, Matthews, Missouri is about a 24-minute drive south of the murder scene. Day said they arrived at the party around 10 to 10.15 p.m. He said he left the party around 12.30 a.m. He said he left with his friend Gene Haynes to drop off his sister's car at her house. They had to deliver the car back by 1 a.m. Day told Farrell they left and took Gene Haynes to his sister's house to leave the car and get Day's truck. Lyle told them he didn't go inside the house but started his truck to get it warmed up and Gene was inside for 10 or 15 minutes. He said his friend Ray Ring was with them also, and they let Ray Ring out at Hardy's to get his car later. And he said that several people saw them at Hardy's at that time. So Lyle gave officers some names of people at the party in Matthews. There were a bunch of them, or six people he knew, plus other people from East Prairie he didn't know. Day told the officers he met Michelle when he was at TNT and she was at the bowling alley. He said he'd gone there to get a soda and they had talked and he gave her a TNT business card. He said they went out and he convinced her to start tanning there. He told them Michelle was more serious about a relationship than she was. He stated she began to hang around TNT and talk with Andy and his wife Tammy. Lyle Day told the officers that he stayed one night at Michelle at the trailer when she and Lalisha tried living on their own for a few weeks. And Lyle admitted they talked about the pregnancy. Now the following part I find interesting and I'm going to quote this verbatim here. The interview report from five days after the murder says this, quote, the sheriff asked Day if Michelle told him she might be pregnant, and he said yes. They discussed it when she was about two weeks late, and again when she was about three weeks late. He asked her about an abortion, and she said she didn't want to discuss it. He said he was not ready for a kid, and she admitted she was not either. But she got mad and slammed his truck door when she got out. They were near the concrete place on Abel's Road. Her car was parked at TNT, and she said she was going to walk back to her car. He said he drove around the block at Homestead and went back to pick her up, but she was gone. He went to TNT, and she was there along with two boys in a blue S10 pickup. The passenger in that truck was Joey Adams, and he did not know the driver. Okay, so there's some stuff to unpack there. Some of what we're about to go over will be relevant to you now, and some of it will be relevant later. If you recall from episode two, Michelle wrote in her diary that Lyle was being a butt on two occasions with the last one saying, quote, so I didn't tell him, unquote. For a long time, I thought that she meant she didn't tell him she was pregnant, and that's what she was waiting to tell Lyle Day. But reading this report from Lyle Day and Lyle Day's friend has given me a new perspective. I think it's possible they were fighting about the perceived pregnancy, but this wasn't their first argument. I believe there is room to believe that Michelle withheld information from him that she was not pregnant, that it was a false alarm, or maybe that she miscarried. Michelle's autopsy, remember, showed that she was not pregnant at the time of her death. 
I think it's entirely possible that they were fighting about something else, something other than the pregnancy. Maybe Lyle was breaking up with her as his friend indicated to police. So let's go back and review Michelle's diary entries. On October 22nd, Michelle wrote that she talked to Lyle and, quote, he hurt my feelings, unquote. On November 3rd, Lyle and two friends jumped in Michelle's car and they cruised. And she wrote, quote, I like Lyle a lot, unquote. On November 4th, she said Lyle was being a butt on two different occasions in the same entry. Came home and talked to Lyle, still being a butt, so I didn't tell him. So that was on November 4th. This all matters in terms of timing. If Michelle believed she was pregnant on October 22nd, it was two weeks late at that point, that pushes up the possible conception date closer to early September when she stayed at Mark's. So I know we focused on Mark Abbott as a suspect in this case, and based on all the statements you've already heard, plus much more that you'll hear about later, he is a suspect in this case. But this examination into Lyle Day is still potentially very relevant. For now, it's important to note three things regarding Lyle Day and his friends. Number one, the timeline Day presents is a little fuzzy. I will break this down more on our website and in a bonus episode later. But if Gene Haynes, Lyle Day, and Ray Ring were covering for one another, it's possible that Ring and Day could have driven from Matthews to the Benton exit and gotten back to Gene's sister house by 1.15 or so. It would be a tight window, but it's possible. That's not suggesting that either were directly involved in the murder, but their presence is possible. In fact, the window is just about too tight to think that they made it there, had time to stop Michelle, get her out of the car, push her down an embankment, knock her in the head, carry her back up the embankment, get her inside the car, shoot her three times, and then return to Teresa Haynes' residence in Morehouse. That just doesn't seem feasible. And Jean Haynes' sister, Teresa Haynes' time seems credible. She said she was getting ready to watch a movie and looked at the clock on the VCR when Jean returned, and it was 1.05 a.m. She said Jean went to the door around 1.15, announcing Day was there and that he was leaving. To be clear, Day said he spent about 15 minutes warming up his truck outside Gene's sister's house. So let's put it this way. It's a tight window, but Lyle Day's alibi is a lot less convincing than Josh Keezer's. The second thing to take away from this interview is simply the name Ray Ring. And the third thing was a tiny little sentence. The report reads, they left Hardy's and went back by the girl's house they were at earlier in the evening around 8.30 to 10 p.m. He gave the street name where these girls lived. It was on Gladys Street in Sykeston. So what this means is that Lyle Day was in Sykeston earlier that evening. That doesn't make a lot of sense now, but it will soon. So I know that's a lot to process, but it's necessary to understand these dynamics and I'm not sure anyone who has investigated this case has really thoroughly investigated not just Day's whereabouts, but connections Day and his friends may have had with Mark Abbott. But here's the thing. Long before I started poking into the alibis of these three guys, one witness put one of them at the crime scene, and that someone would be Mark Abbott. As we move forward through the investigation in the following few days, Trooper Wyndham interviewed several folks, including some of Michelle's former co-workers. They also conducted a road check at 55 and 77, stopping motorists and asking them if they had seen anything a week earlier that looked suspicious. 
They'd interview Lalisha O'Dell again, and she would tell them the names of everyone she knew in Michelle's circle, except the one guy in Cape she didn't know who drove the little black truck. Of all the people that she knew that Michelle knew, she thought Day, who owned a gun and had a temper, was the most likely of all of Michelle's friends to kill someone. She said one more interesting thing. She said Lyle Day rides around with someone in a white car, which she believed to be a Ford Escort. The investigators really did put in a lot of work in that week or so after the murder, particularly Don Wyndham, the state trooper. Wyndham would state later that communication only seemed to flow one way during that time. He said Farrell insisted that Shivitz accompany him on interviews, but there were important reports and information that never came his way. Wyndham was the most competent investigator working this case, but his hands were tied in many ways. So that brings us to November 18, 1992. It was a big day in the investigation. It's 10 days after the murder. It appeared that law enforcement had about exhausted their interest in Lyle Day and his friends. That's when Mark Abbott made his boldest move yet. It should have been a watershed moment, one way or another, in the investigation of Michelle Lawless's murder. Whenever Mark had gave his statement, his first, his first statement was that he saw he was at the payphone which is which you know was very close to the to the murder scene he was at the payphone and this white car pulled up and it was uh, i think he i think his words were a carload of mexicans and they said something about looking for gas and he told him screw you he got scared he threw the phone down and he took off and went and reported to the sheriff's office which Later, we find out that Roy Moore uh, saw a white vehicle. I believe it was a white vehicle. He said, I think it was a report, and said that he said there was. Uh, I don't know if he said it, a couple uh, Mexicans was looking for gas, and he directed them to, up the road. Then later, Mark gave a statement that said that he was at the payphone and his car pulled up. I believe he said it was a white car. And it was a black guy in it, and his name was Ray Ring. He knew Ray Ring because Ray Ring was uh, supposedly sold drugs in Sykeston. And so he named Ray Ring as being there. And then he changed his story again from a white car to a white guy at the payphone. So he, the only thing he was consistent in was the car. He went from a Mexican to a black guy to a white person. So, you know... I don't know why anybody would put any faith in anything he said because he wasn't even close with his stories. You're about to listen to a reading of the report that Officer Bobby Wooten took on November 18, 1992. Ring knew who Lawless was but stated he never talked to her. He said he'd seen her around town but didn't know she was living in Sykeston. The last time he was in Benton was three or four months ago on his way to Commerce to attend a party hosted by John Worley. He said Lawless was there. Ring said he went with Mike Leslie. The party got busted. He added that Worley's parties always get busted. He said they know Ronnie Jackson is how they were invited to the party. Ring stated that he never went to Benton November 7, 1992, and that he has several witnesses to verify that he was in Sykeston, Missouri. He said he went to Scott City, Missouri, one month ago and shot pool at Sean Coomer's house. He knows him through Leslie, who grew up in Scott City. He goes to Coomer's house a lot. John Brown, Todd Coomer, Billy Southern, and Big Niederkorn usually go. I asked him if he knows Mark Abbott. 
He said he knows who he is, but he doesn't like him. He said he is a racist and said he'd kill any black who dated a white girl and would kill any girlfriend of his who dated a black. He said he dated Laura Bailey a few times and she had previously dated Abbott. He said Abbott has some real asshole friends. He said they're mean and capable of killing someone. He said they are Kevin Williams and Gary Arnzen. Abbott, Williams, and Arnzen all smoke marijuana, get drunk, and then want to fight. They get mean. Mark Dodson, near Commerce, is into drugs and knows these guys also. Ring said Day is a good friend of his. He said he heard Day talking about the possibility that he had gotten Lawless pregnant. Ring said Day said that about three other girls also. One he remembered was Jenna Wade of Blodgett. He said Daryl Best is a good friend of Day's also. He drives a white Ford Escort. They are friends with Andy Stone of TNT Tanning also. Ring said that he doesn't think Best ever dated Lawless and that Stone was married. Ring said he knows who Vince Howard and Eric Shanks are, but doesn't know them very well. He knows Sean Dugan, who drives a red Ford and is 17 years old. He said he didn't think Dugan had the guts to kill anyone. He said he didn't think anyone his age could have killed her. Ring thinks it's an older person, but he doesn't know why. He added that Lyle isn't selling dope as far as he knows. He was then asked if he would submit to a blood test. He consented and Deputy Shivitz obtained the consent and the blood. The blood was then transported to the SEMO Regional Crime Lab for analysis. The investigation is continuing. Don J. Wyndham, Trooper. The report you just heard was never seen by Josh Kieser's defense. It's proof that Josh Kieser's rights were violated. Mark Abbott identified the man at the payphone as Ray Ring, a mixed-race man with African-American features. He was dark-complected, broad-shouldered. Mark Abbott brought Ray Ring's name into the murder investigation of Michelle Lawless. That's a big deal. It's the same man who was with Lyle Day all evening. While Josh Kieser was in another state, hundreds of miles away, Mark Abbott put Lyle Day's close friend at the murder scene minutes after the murder. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thewallacefiles.com and subscribe. But if you're intrigued by this episode and the changing stories beginning with the Beardsley interview, you'll want to find our bonus episode where Bob and I take the different driving routes that would have taken Mark Abbott to the sheriff's station, back to the scene, to his home, and on to Heather Pierce's house. Which route was the right one? We don't know, since Mark's story changed so many times. But we tried them all, and we discussed the possible commute times for each. Could Mark Abbott have gone to the sheriff's office, returned to the scene, talked with an officer, and arrived at Pierce's house in 35 minutes? Go to www.thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe to find out. Next time on The Lawless Files. They themselves never investigated it, never questioned any of my witnesses, never looked into my alibi. They never so much as even questioned me.